listener production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Thank you so much for listening. And we always love to grow the briefing audience. And the best way to do that is to make sure everyone listening is subscribed. Also rate and review in the podcast app you're listening to us in or share any of our interviews on your socials. We would love that. Thank you so much. A really interesting briefing today. It's around the biggest political news of the week. That's the voice referendum. The federal parliament voted earlier this week to pass the legislation for the referendum, which now has to happen within six months and is expected to happen around about October Something you might not know is that in Victoria, they've actually just voted in their own body that's quite similar to The Voice. It's called the First People's Assembly of Victoria. So in this episode, we're going to speak to one of its representatives to find out how it works and how it would fit with a national voice. It's kind of a stronger version of The Voice that we're trying to push for here in Victoria. So we'll learn all about that in our briefing in this episode of The Briefing. First, here are today's big headlines with Antoinette Latouf. It is Wednesday, the 21st of June. G'day, Tom. So we start off with a pretty intense story, as though the Titanic sinking wasn't bad enough. There's now a frantic search underway for a missing Titanic tourist sub in the Atlantic. So there are five people on board and only about 40 hours of breathable air left. And Captain Jamie Frederick of the US Coast Guard said crews are searching the surface by air and underwater using sonar to detect sound with efforts continuing through the night. Today, those search efforts have not yielded any results. So the vessel lost communication about two hours in on Sunday local time, and it was diving to see the Titanic wreck on the seafloor, which is about 3,800 metres below the surface. Yeah, this is a crazy and frightening situation, Antoinette, with the hours ticking down before they run out of oxygen. Um, This is a very expensive trip. Apparently, it costs around 370,000 Australian dollars to tank this journey, And it was meant to take place last June, but they couldn't do it because the submersible was damaged on its previous dive. Yeah, lucky nobody was injured in that incident. But even this mission, uh, one of the men on board who runs the company behind the dive, he actually posted on Facebook saying that this particular mission was likely to be the first and only in 2023 because of the poor weather conditions in Canada where the mission sets off from. So if this is uh, the first and only in 2023, I really do hope that there is a happy ending. An independent senator, Lydia Thorpe, has announced she is going to back the no campaign in the referendum and she'll even help write the no case for the referendum pamphlet. The no pamphlet, absolutely I'll be there. I mean, I'm looking forward to it, you know. We're going to have to sit in a room with people that we don't normally get along with, so looking forward to that journey. Yeah, she's talking about Pauline Hanson there and also members of the coalition. So previously she said she wouldn't back either side. She was going to abstain, but she's revealed there's been a breakdown in negotiations with the federal government. So she's moved into the no camp. Gosh, Tom, talk about having a pretty, you know, unlikely bedfellow. I, I was on NITV the other weekend. First Nations human rights lawyer, Nessa Turnbull-Roberts, I think she summed it up really well when she said at the moment there's a yes campaign, but that there are actually two no campaigns. And when it comes to the no campaign with the loudest voice, that belongs to kind of Peter Dutton and Pauline Hansen. And to be fair, they've got real form when it comes to being quite divisive and, and at times pretty bigoted. (laughs) 
And they're using the not enough information and it's going to divide the country on race argument, like as though the health and mortality and education gap between Indigenous and others isn't already a massive divide that's huge and not shifting. But at the same time, she pointed out there's also the Indigenous No campaign where there are legitimate concerns from some community members about the voice not being powerful enough or that we need a treaty first. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's it's interesting because this would mean a union of the two very different No campaigns in, in writing this pamphlet. Yeah, well, the guy you'll hear from the Victorian First Peoples Assembly. He argues you need a voice before having a treaty because how do you negotiate a treaty without having a voice? So yeah, there is a lot of Mm. different nuanced arguments within Indigenous Australia about this. Overseas again, and Hunter Biden, the son of US President Joe Biden, has been charged for allegedly failing to pay federal income tax and also illegally having a weapon. So Hunter Biden will plead guilty to tax offences as part of an agreement that will also spare him prosecution for that illegal firearm possession as a drug user if he adheres to a bunch of conditions and then he will likely avoid jail time. And I don't know, Tom, call me a Puritan, um, but is it too much to ask that US presidents, past and present, and their family like not commit tax crimes or alleged sexual assaults and insurrections? Is that is that too big an ask? Mm, no, you, you think they could be good role models, but um, doesn't seem to be the case in America. (laughs) So yeah, this ends a long-running Department of Justice investigation into Hunter Biden, who, yeah, as you sort of implied, there has created a lot of bad headlines for his dad. Trump is out there saying on True Social that this is just a, a traffic ticket for Hunter Biden, and it's proof that the American justice system is broken. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Trump should um, just focus on all of his court cases and alleged crimes. And the Australian cricket team has pulled off an incredible win on the final um, day of the first Ashes test. So this was an absolute cracker. It came down to the fifth day um, with just two wickets to spare. And the captain, Pat Cummins, who's more known for his bowling, hit the winning runs with a boundary. has led his team to a famous victory here at Edgebaston. Yeah, so it's traditionally really hard to chase a big total in the fourth innings. They had to chase 281 runs and the wickets were falling, but they managed to pull it off. So it's just incredible. And the other big sporting event um, that's happening is the State of Origin tonight. Game two, go the Blues, but winning in Queensland when you've already lost Mm -hmm. game one. Yeah, I don't know. And gosh, this is really sad news. We won't be able to buy fantails from next month. Mm. So Nestle announced the end of the 93-year-old product due to declining sales of the delicious chocolate-covered caramels. Um, They've also said the machinery to make them is ageing, replacing it's too expensive. But what are we going to do now without those fantail wrapper facts? Yeah, this is really sad. I, I just can't imagine a world without fantails. You know, it's such iconic packaging, as you say. And, you know, I mean, not, they're not the most amazing lolly. I mean, there was the cobber that came before them for those of a certain vintage. <laughs> um, they're already out of commission. Now fantails are going. I mean, what's next? The snake? 
Surely not. You know what? I think the snake is here to stay. Mm. But what I am seeing more and more is, you know, of a mum to young girls is like we're realising all the crap we ate as kids is full of sugar and not great for us. So there's actually some really delicious products now available that have either no sugar or a lot less sugar. So unfortunately, we're all just becoming a little bit more healthy. Boring. <laughs> goodbye to the fantail. Um, all right, and goodbye to you, Antoinette Latouf. Uh, we're about to go to the Victorian First People's Assembly. So this week, Writers' Federal Parliament has passed the legislation for the referendum on enshrining the First Nations voice into our constitution. Victoria has just announced the results of their vote for a First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. Now, Reuben Berg is going to be one of its members and he joins us to explain how it's going to work there in Victoria, but also how it would fit with a national voice. Uh, Reuben, thank you so much for joining us. It's a group of representative Indigenous Victorians. You will negotiate with the Victorian government. So in a way, does that mean it is quite similar to what's being proposed with the national voice? Yeah, I'd say it's, it's similar in, in that it's a representative body that's able to have conversations directly with the parliament and with the executive as well. But our aspirations is that the, the assembly will be able to have uh, actual decision-making power as part of the treaty negotiations. And the framework we've already agreed to with government does set out the idea that there could be decision-making powers handed over. So in that way, it's kind of a stronger version of, of the voice that we're trying to push for here in Victoria. Right. So you'd have decision-making power only in relation to the treaty or, or would that extend to other policy areas? Yeah. So that, that's the idea. That's what we're going to be trying to negotiate in this next phase of the treaty is are there particular decisions that the Victorian government is making that directly affect First Peoples in this state? And should those be decisions that are no longer made by the state, but are actually made by the First Peoples Assembly or by other First Peoples groups that are appropriate to make that decision? Right, okay. So you have power over the treaty, but then the treaty itself could fundamentally change the power dynamic between Indigenous Victorians and your state government. That's right. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, so let's wind back a little bit. Tell us how this First People's Assembly came about. Yeah, so it's hard to know how far to wind it back to because this has been an ongoing process for for centuries for our people advocating for our rights, but Mm. more immediately in terms of the Assembly itself, This came out of work from the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission, uh, and they were the body that was kind of pushing the idea of of treaty, of pursuing that. The government supported that idea, and Annie Jill Gallagher was the commissioner there. And after lots of consultations, the idea was that there should be this elected group of First Peoples, the Assembly, and so that was created back in 2019. Okay, and then come to more recent times, you've just had an election to represent the new iteration of this assembly. Tell us how that election worked. Obviously, it's no mean feat to try and make a body like this truly representative when you have such a diverse group of Indigenous cultures and peoples. Yeah, so the assembly has, uh, the current version of the assembly will have 32 members and that's chosen in two different ways within our community. So there are regional representatives So across the whole state, it's been divided up into five different regions, the metro region and then kind of the cardinal points of the compass for the other regions. And each region has a number of representatives based on proportion of population of First Peoples in those areas. So the metropolitan region has 10 representatives. 
each of the other three regions has three representatives and they are elected by the First Peoples community within those, those regions. And so that brings us to the 22 members of the Assembly. And then there's also here in Victoria, we've got groups that have formal recognition as traditional owner groups, whether that's under the native title process from the Commonwealth level, whether that's under a thing we have called the Traditional Owner Settlement Act here in Victoria, or under the Registered Aboriginal Party process we have. So that gives us, uh, there's 11 of those groups. 10 of those have chosen to put forward an, a representative. One group, the Yorta Yorta, have so far chosen not to submit a representative, but the other, the other 10 have. And so that's what brings us up to our, our 32 representative body. Okay. And so how will it work? Will you come together in, in some kind of meeting place that's in any way like a a parliament or will it move around to different locations? How often will it meet? How will this group work? Will members be working on it full-time, part-time? Will they be paid? Give us some of the nuts and bolts. Yeah, for sure. The way it worked for the previous assembly and the way I'm assuming it's going to function for the next assembly is that we come together as what we call our chamber, where we have all 32 members come together every quarter. So four times a year, we try and have those those meetings. They're two-day meetings normally to come together and make decisions, formalised decisions about the treaty-making process. And the first chamber that we had when we were elected back in 2019 that was actually hosted by Victorian Parliament. Victorian Parliament gave over their House of Parliament for us to come and use for our first chamber, which was quite a symbolic gesture. We then made sure that we moved the chamber around because we want to make sure we're connecting to all parts of Victoria, so we would move to different places for those meetings. There is different scope for how active members want to be. Uh, at a minimum, uh, members will be committing one to two days a week on average to the treaty process. If you get selected for more um, leadership roles within the board, within what we call the council or um, co-conveners of different committees, then you will get a, a, a expected to work longer hours on that. That's three to five days a week for those roles as well as the co-chairs. And there is wages for these roles. They're kind of benchmarked with what's happening with politicians because we consider ourselves to be on the same level of Victorian politicians. And so that's where the, the salaries are benchmarked against that. So how long will it take, do you think, to negotiate a treaty? Well, one of the really interesting things that we've been able to do here in Victoria with the, the framework is that we haven't just got the idea that you have to have everything agreed about every different aspect before you finally have a treaty. The framework really importantly says that you can have what's called interim agreements. So that if we do come to a negotiation and say, well, okay, here's an agreement that we've got that this particular decision-making power should now sit with the assembly, we can sign that off as an interim agreement and start implementing that. So there could well be actual outcomes coming within the next year, but the final treaty outcome, that could be, you know, a decade away or so. Like it's going to be an ongoing journey. It's not just a final destination. Okay, so if Australia votes yes in the referendum and we start to set up a a national First Nations voice to Parliament, how will that fit with your assembly in Victoria? Will they work in coordination or will they be completely parallel or you know or have nothing to do with each other? What will that relationship be? The idea will be that there will be a really strong relationship, and that's one of the kind of design principles of the voice that we we can see within the detail is that it will respect existing groups and that it's, you know different regions will be able to use their own process for selecting their representatives. So there's not going to be some new system that enforces a way that we will have to choose our representative. We as the Victorian Aboriginal community, we will be able to work it out ourselves. And the aspiration of the Assembly is that we'll be able to have decision-making powers on behalf of the Victorian government, 
we'll be able to be a voice directly to the Victorian Parliament on those things we don't have decision-making powers, but we'll also then be able to coordinate the voice at the Commonwealth level as well. And that will then mean there is that coordination, that, that similarity about how we're coming together to have those conversations. So what's your view on the national picture? Do you think every state should have their own state-based First Peoples Assembly or Indigenous voice and they should all coordinate into the national voice or would we be better off just having one voice overall? What do you think is the ideal model? I think the model you suggested there where it would be other states and territories have similar models that we have here in Victoria, but, I mean, it's also I think really important that each state and territory has their own method of coming up with how they want to do it. But I think we've got a really good model here in Victoria that they could kind of build from. And then that does feed into a voice at a Commonwealth level. And it is important we have those different levels because there's different decision-making powers, different rights that sit at the state level that you need to negotiate separately and have conversations about separately. And then it's a whole other set of rights and decision-making powers that sit at the Commonwealth level that you need to have that direct conversation with the Commonwealth about. Uh, but we already are seeing some great progress in other states and territories. And in fact, I find it quite interesting to note that the Australian Capital Territory, they've had an elected voice to their parliament for quite a number of years now, and it's, it hasn't really kind of changed the world for other people. It's been useful for first peoples in, in Australian Capital Territory, but there's sometimes these concerns raised that, you know, the sky's going to fall down if all of a sudden we have this voice. Well, there's already been a voice operating in one of our states and territories for quite a number of years, and some people don't even realise it. So it can't be that much of a big of an impact for non-Indigenous peoples, despite the significant benefit it will bring to First Peoples. So which other states are quite advanced in establishing their own voice or First Peoples assemblies? Yeah, so I would say that having regard to Australian Capital Territory already having a voice, they haven't got progressions around treaty conversations, though. So overall, I think Victoria is the, the most advanced. But we've seen recently where South Australia have passed legislation for them to establish uh, a voice to the South Australian Parliament. We've seen Queensland pass legislation around treaty making and a truth telling process they're going to be pursuing. In the Northern Territory, they've been doing some work with treaty commissioners up there. We've seen some commitments made from New South Wales that I think will happen, more action will happen after the, the referendum on that. And also we've seen in Tasmania some, some significant work being happened, some commitments to progress that. And these are long processes. Like we've been having this conversation here in Victoria for quite a number of years to get to this point. Um, and it's great to see other states and territories following along. So given how deep you are in this process in Victoria, what are your insights into the way the conversation is going around the referendum? Because polling is showing that support is dropping, which is obviously concerning for proponents of The Voice. What's going wrong? What's going right? How are you seeing this debate play out from your point of view? Yeah, well, I think the No campaign has had a fair bit of space to kind of put get out there and, and, and share its kind of views and perspectives on these things. And I think we're going to start to see now that the, the legislation has passed in the Senate and that we have got this support now that there will be a referendum and that we've got NAIDOC week coming up. I think we will see a really, really strong build now of the yes campaign, and especially when we have an end date of knowing when it is the campaign will need to finish by. And I think that the more and more information that we're able to get out there, the more people that I sit down and have conversations with where they actually really understand what the voice is about and dis dispel some of the, the myths, the misconceptions they might have about it, the more people come on board to it. And we just need to have the time to keep having those conversations. And I have absolute confidence that we will get a positive outcome for the voice. And voice versus treaty or voice and treaty, what is the relationship there, do you think? Obviously, the process has already started there in Victoria, but on a national level, what do you think the relationship between the voice and or treaty could be? 
my understanding is that the Uluru Statement has voice treaty truth and that Prime Minister Albanese has committed to all three aspects of that. But as we've demonstrated here in Victoria, before you can just go and negotiate a treaty, you need to have a collective voice of First Peoples who are going to be there at the table to have that negotiation. So I don't really think you can progress to treaty without some form of collective voice, a way of bringing together First Peoples to have that discussion. And so once we have a voice, that will then enable that conversation to progress to the next phase, which is treaty. That's Ruben Berg, who's from the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. And it does sound like these state-based bodies are already getting started on some important work and will make important progress that won't necessarily depend on a national voice getting up. These voices are established now in Victoria in the ACT and soon in South Australia, so they will exist and be in operation no matter what happens when we all go to the referendum. Mm -hmm. 